0: There you go. That is the Smiths with a track titled Big Math Strikes Game from the, from the album The World Won't Listen. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. <laughs> Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Mickey Baraney, one-time member of Lush, and now with our indie supergroup, who are called Poroshka. So, I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into about four or five easy-to-digest little segments throughout the show, alongside the usual award-worthy playlists. But to get the party rolling, I think I should play your favourite of mine. Yes, this is (laughs) Hypocrite. Excitable Sounds. That is Lush with the track titled Hypocrite that came from the 1994 album Split. Hello, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. A bit later on, I will give you our, um, some admin. Yes, how you can contact the show if you so wish. And also just to say that the, um, I've archived all the back catalogue. So you can find it on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and also Podbean. It's all there and much more. Anyway, each week we have a special guest. And this week is going to be Mickey, one time member of Lush. And now a member of the kind of indie super band, super group band of, um, yes, the current day. I was having a bit of a Proustian flashback because I remember in the 70s there used to be super groups. But now they're just rock and roll. Anyway, she's in a band called Parushka, which features members of Elastica, Moose and also Modern English. So this was an interview I did last September, which went on for hours. Anyway, I've been holding it back until the release of this album and tour, which is coming up very soon so what i'm going to do is play another track by the band lush this is and then the first part of the interview and then i'll be playing tracks from their new album anyway this is going to be sweetness and light And there you go, that is a little bit of ethereal, atmospheric dream pop, and that is Lush, with a track titled Sweetness and Light that came, f- came out on the 4AD record label in 1990. Indeed, you do the maths. It was years, it was decades ago, in fact, but still sounding as good today as it did back then when we got very excited about Lush, especially when they first came to the Norwich Art Centre at Double Bill with The Pale Saints. All Fountains, oh, I think it was the Pale Saints. Anyway, I'll edit that bit out. This is David Eastall, this is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy, otherwise don't bother. See your therapist, they'll sort it out. But anyway, this week's special guest is going to be Mickey, one-time member of Lush. And now with an indie super band or super group. Um, And this is the first part, and I've just been asking about her early musical journey when they came along onto the scene. And I'd been talking about the sort of 80s indie scene and bands like the Go-Betweens and the June Brides. And this was Mickey's answer. Mickey, how did it all develop in those early years? Indeed.
1: I mean, when I think back, I'm just trying to follow a timeline because basically me and Emma met at school when we were about... So we, I think we started going to gigs when we were about... 15 something like that I think she came to my school and we there was a group of us and we'd go and see bands but none of us had like older siblings or anything like that so we were kind of starting at the charts end of it you know going to see like Teardrop Explodes or Haircut 100 or something and then we'd go and see their support band and then their support band and within about three months you end up at I don't know the Bull and Gate or something or, you know, the, the club foot in Hammersmith seeing X mal Deutschland or whatever, you know. Um, <clears throat> so I think at that point we were so kind of obsessive about music that we just used to – and gigs were really cheap as well. So I think we got – we were quite faddy and there was – you know, it's a group of kind of 15-, 16-year-old girls, so everyone's got their favourites and we're all a bit competitive with each other. So, you know, it will be, oh – some of us got into, like, you know, I don't know, Anarcho Punk, and then others would get into slightly psychobilly things. Others would get into more um, indie. I don't know, you know, it was there was a lot of scenes going on at the time. There was a lot of bands you could go and see, and they all seemed to have their tribe of followers. So you could sort of dip into things. And we sort of ended up seeing everything. So I had weeks where... I don't know, you know, you'd you'd go and see, like, the Higsons and then see the Sisters of Mercy and then see Play Dead or something and then see the Smiths and then see the Farmer's Boys and then see the Chameleons or, you know what I mean? So it's literally scouring the kind of gig list in the NME and going, right, let's go to this, let's go to that. I think, you know, because what also made it cheaper is we didn't drink at the time. I mean, I think, you know, I can distinctly remember going to see... I think it was actually the Smiths supporting the Sisters of Mercy at the Brixton Ace. And I think me and Emma shared half a cider um, and just ran around being really excited. So, you know, and then, and like I say, the gigs were cheap, opposite of now really records (laughs) expensive, gigs cheap, but it just meant you could go along and, take a chance on things and you know um so yeah there was there was a lot going on and then you know because we didn't really know anyone and we were very young we were sort of 16 by the time we were sort of going to gigs a lot but we were pretty shy actually and everyone was a bit older so that's when we started doing a fanzine together so we thought well great because loads of people wrote fanzines and we thought well this will be quite a good way to get to meet people (laughs) actually if you're touting this magazine around and then people get to know you and it's a kind of conversation starter and also a way to interview bands even though we were totally hopeless at it um so but you know it was a terrible fanzine other people have told me it was quite good but it was totally um puerile and uh, it was only 5p. That was its main saving grace.
0: <laughs> yes. But it was interesting because I spoke to Claire, who went on to do um, Sarah Records. And I mean, she started as a fanzine writer. And um, yes, it was kind of something that she enjoyed doing because she'd often go to gigs on her own and obviously sort of often felt a bit self-conscious. But then thought, actually, I can stand here and try and meet people by selling this fanzine, which is, you know, I think she took it quite politically kind of... Um, Yes, uh, of a certain sort of um, seriousness to to it, because actually that was kind of interesting that eighties period because there was kind of the music scene was so split between that indie world, and then there was the kind of mainstream charts world, which was kind of all that Trevor Horn production sound, and then you had that LA sort of sound as well of, of heavy metal. So it was kind of you, It was very. It felt very tribal. So obviously the kind of the mainstream charts um, didn't sort of tickle your fancy at all at that point.
1: Um. No, because I think once we were exploring a more underground kind of world, you know, the gigs were a lot more intimate and, you know, you you could get, get to know people, you know, so it was actually fun to just go out and, you know the days before social media or mobile phones. I mean, I didn't even have a phone in in the place I was living. So it was that thing of just taking a chance, like going to a gig and thinking, well, it's bound to be somebody I know there. And invariably there was, and you know, you might know one of the bands on, um, but again, because it was cheap, and, you know, we were really curious as well. We were happy to see new bands that we'd never heard of because it was another opportunity to find out about music. And and it was actually cheaper than, say, going out and, and buying the singles and taking a risk in that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the fanzine thing, there were, like I said, there was loads of fanzines around. A lot of the people that I got to kind of... I mean, a lot of them went on to become journalists, you know, uh, James Brown, you know, who ended up on Loaded and Everett True. I mean, then he was called the legend, um, John Robb of the Membranes, you know, all of these people I met at that time because they all wrote fanzines and a lot of people would write for each other's fanzines. I mean, we used to have a page, Fizz comic used to send us a page, um, so it was quite, you know, it was there was quite a community, and it was a good way to get to know people. I mean, not in any cynical way, just just to be part of a scene. It was really, you know, very lively. There was a lot going on, so it was a great thing to be a part of. And as you say, it was very separate from the mainstream. And this is probably around the time when, you know, the kind of. On the one side, there's all these gigs going on and it's the minor strike and we're going to see the Redskins and Billy Bragg and, you know, things like that are going on. And in the kind of mainstream, it's all, you know, I don't know, live aid or or kind of, yeah, you know, sort of big, big, big bands getting huge in America, um, totally separate world.
0: You yes. know, uh, it very, Yes, it was a very separate world. I know, it's kind of weird. Sometimes I, obviously on a Friday night, I love watching the BBC four bits, you know, and sometimes there's the Top of the Pops, which I sort of watch and fast forward through it, you know, in equal measure. And it is a bit odd, sort of realising and thinking, God, this was not the music I listened to or related to at all. It was just so bizarre because it felt, you know, like I just wasn't part or would never be invited to that sort of world and, and be clapping along with Gary Davis and Steve Wright in the afternoon which was my idea of hell.
1: (laughs) Well, exactly. And I'm sure there was a lot of kind of inverted snobbery about it as well. Um, I mean, there certainly was even between the scenes, you know, I can remember going to see, I don't know, you know, like the men they couldn't hang or something, you know, and someone in that audience going like, why have you got a, I don't know, a badge of... Whoever, you know, ex Deutschland or, or, or some 4AD band or whatever. And, you know, you, you'd kind of get... I mean, the only time I remember seeing like a genuine mix of people, people from all different scenes, was actually going to see The Smiths very early on. It was weird because you would get people from the sort of anarcho Punk scene or the Psychobilly scene or they were kind of goths. There was all sorts of different people, whereas a lot of those gigs used to be kind of you know people used to sort of be quite antagonistic about each other actually you know Um, especially I mean yeah like I say the sort of psychobilly scene with I don't know you know the stingrays or the guana bats and all of that was quite laddish you know so they completely frowned on the sort of indie like you're saying c86 that was like oh it's just a bunch of students you know (laughs) (laughs)
0: I know, it was always very tricky back in those days And so tribal I remember if you ever said anything about status quo In the community I lived in You would have definitely got beaten up Anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Mickey from Lush And also now in a new band called Parushka Who have live dates coming up as well as an album Um, Yes, they're starting on the 29th of March at the Soup Kitchen in Manchester, and they will be coming to. Well, they're playing right, right across the country, but they're also going to play on the play on the fifth of April at Cambridge as well. And um, yeah, so if you want to know any more information, just go to their website which I'll give you the address a bit later but before we have any more chat I think we should play some more music this again is um, quite an early single by the band or it came from their album or EP titled Mad Love this is Deluxe you see I love their early work Another slice of dreamy indie pop. There you go. That is Lush with a track titled Deluxe that came from their EP titled Mad Love. And that was produced by Robin Guthrie, one-time member of the Copto Twins. And for those who are interested in what Mickey's up to now, she's in a band called Perushka. They have an album that has just come out on Bella Union, which is a label run by Simon Raymond, who was also a member or one-third, of the Copto Twins. It all comes back to the Copto Twins. So if you need to know or want to find out more information about this latest musical adventure by Mickey and her supergroup, it is on Bella Union Records, and um, if you go there, you will find out more information. And if you want to know how to spell Parushka, it is P-I-R-O-S-H-K-A, and their new album is titled Brick Bat and that has just come out and they have live shows that are coming up at the end of March and through April. Anyway, this is the second part of my interview with Mickey, where I was talking about those early musical teen years and whether she used to play guitar and her musical journey. I know you all want me to play Lush and Chirpy Chirpy cheap, cheap, but that might come later. Just calm down. Anyway, Mickey, we, I take think away. I had to
1: go at a few things, but not in I didn't have the sort of discipline or the kind of parental support to really be um properly you know learning an instrument um I mean I think that what going to see all these bands did was actually show you how possible it was to be in a band so I think when I was first getting into music and I loved you know whether it was Susie and a Banshees or even early in a blondie or you know, pop bands that I thought were great. Never in a million years could I imagine actually doing anything like that. It was just completely out of the question. But once you're, you know, kind of downstairs at the Clarendon with 20 people and there's some band third on the bill that can barely carry a song to the end, you do kind of think, well, I think I could manage that, you know. Um, And I think you know it just becomes possible yes. and everyone in a band everyone's in a band everyone's writing a fanzine everyone's got you know people have got stores on Portobello market where they're selling clothes i mean everybody is running a club putting on gigs you know there's a lot of activity going on and um it all just seems really you know opportunities there constantly
0: mm-hmm. so because having kind of spoken to a few people, I remember Fast Eddie from Motorhead. He said, yes, cause they'd been together for a bit and it's getting to that point where they thought actually, you know, it's, not, it's going nowhere fast. so let's just give it, you know, let's call it a day, but we'll do a few more gigs and see. And then eventually they kind of got a sound that made them a bit more special than the usual pub rock band. So obviously, you know, they could then step into the slightly larger arena and start to tour and do other things. So did you also have that experience of trying to get a sound that took a while or did it come together quite quickly
1: well i mean initially i think emma joined uh, a band called the rover girls she was playing bass with them and um and then i joined a band called the bugs who were a kind of garagey band and i mean i couldn't you know so i was meant to be playing bass but i think i just agreed to play baseball them one night When I found out that their bass player was going to live in America, oh, I'll play bass for you having never played bass in my life. And, you know, I sort of fell into that. And then because they, you know, were already touring. So I think we did a tour of Germany and stuff. So I did actually, you know, it was a bit of a learning curve, like, oh, bloody hell, I better get my act together. And then I think, you know, it kind of prompted me and Emma. So we were both playing bass in other people's bands and there wasn't really a look in, in terms of writing, which was done by other people. And so we started sort of having done the fanzine together, you know, we thought, well, should we, you know, do, let's try and have a go at writing music. And so I think, I mean, was Emma, I can't remember who was playing guitar and whether One of us was playing bass. I actually can't remember. We just used to sit in her kitchen in Ealing and um, it was appalling. (laughs) We used to just plug into her stereo and sort of, you know, just agonising. Wait, hang on. I'm just going to change chords. Wait, wait, wait. You know, like trying to sort of piece these songs together, trying to jam when you can't actually play. And I think we quickly realised that that wasn't going to work. So we actually would just go off individually and work on a song and then come back and then, you know, right, here's the song, these are the chords, and then, you know, kind of play them together. Um, and I think at the beginning we would just, you know, it was almost like anything will do. And at that stage, you know, quite impatient to get going. So I was, uh, um, I st- I'd started at North London Polly. So I just asked Muriel, Chris and Steve. Um, I knew Chris could play the drums, but Steve had never played bass in his life and Muriel certainly had never been in a band. And um, so we just started playing really. And then Mariel actually was writing some songs. And I think hers was probably you know, better than anything that me and Emma had written at the time. We were like, oh, blimey, she's actually really good. So, um, and then, so that's what kind of edged it forward, you know, like someone would write a song and you'd think, oh God, okay, this is a different level. And it would inspire everyone else to sort of not just rush out a song and think, oh, well, I've written a verse and a chorus, that will do. But to actually sit down and sort of work on a song and think about it and think about the different parts and as I say because we didn't jam because we weren't good enough to do that it's not like you could turn up with just a guitar part and get Steve to write the bass line because he couldn't play the bass anyway so you had to kind of slavishly sort of work out what notes would actually work with those chords so it was yeah, it was all kind of at the same time. You know, it was like trying to write, you know, trying to write the songs before you could actually play them, really. Yes. That was the key.
0: Because obviously before that, a few years before, we had the great, you know, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it, which had a great amount of enthusiasm and some amazing songs in two minutes. So, I mean, mm. so you came along and your vibe was a little bit different than theirs. I mean, it seemed a little bit more kind of, um, I suppose the, the vocals and everything it had a bit more of a, I don't know, almost more of a buzz, didn't it, than, than the sort of the fuzz box sound. So were the, were bands like that kind of influential or were they bands you thought, no, we didn't like them at all?
1: I remember seeing I've got a, We've Got a Fuzz Box. I think that was downstairs at the Clarendon, somewhere really small. I really liked them. You know, it was really good fun and they had these little dance moves and they looked really cute. I thought it was great.
0: Yes, well, well, um, Boston Steve Austin was just one of those kind of classic albums that that sort of you know captured that moment, and and obviously they were always going to have problems with their second album, which I think they still did a good second album, but you know obviously where do you go from you know Boston to Steve Austin? So I just wondered because obviously you you relied quite a bit on sort of that kind of um, yeah just a lot of feedback. I suppose is it feedback you you kind of created on that first few singles?
1: Um, I think. I mean I think the 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 difference there is that I think fuzzbox were um you know very good on the performance they were very confident and you know they I don't know they they sort of and they were fun and and but you know it was the self confidence whereas we were really not self confident and I think we had quite high ambitions but again because we couldn't really play it was you know the the execution was always some way behind the concept and so playing live that was quite tricky um you know it would just i can just remember playing like a 20 minute set and barely breathing throughout and I think, you know, it was a bit of a shambles and Chris was a great drummer, but the rest of us were pretty much all over the place. And we didn't really know how to rehearse. You know, we'd go to a studio and we'd just play the songs lots of times and nothing really seemed to improve that much. You know, I don't think we'd grasp that you you don't just play it through eight times and think, OK, we've done that. You have actually got to try and concentrate and, and work things out. Um, so that took a while. And I think, you know, and then we just had the blow that um, Meryl left. Well, we kicked her out, you know, basically. I mean, she was didn't seem to be that into it. And I kind of understand why, because some of the songs me and Emma, me in particular, were writing for her. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't have wanted to sing them. Um, and so at that point, we had to try and find another singer. And we auditioned people, but it was it was just a disaster we advertised that we just couldn't find anyone so you know Emma was like well basically either Mickey sings or we're gonna have to split up you know and so I took over the vocals incredibly reluctantly and again that was another thing of of being you know it's just crippling for me to be on stage trying first of all trying to sing and play guitar at the same time was a nightmare but I just, you know, I'd never joined that band to become a singer. That's not the way I thought of myself at all. And um, so I suppose it's a really roundabout way of saying that whereas I think you've got bands who have always wanted to be on stage. And, you know, I think someone like Brett Anderson from the second he stepped on stage or, or you know, Blur or any of these people, you know, that they had huge amounts of self-confidence. We were just, we did look like a bunch of people who had just been shoved on there against their will and we're just hoping against hope it would all kind of gel somehow um and that really didn't change until we got a lot more experience and you know realized we could actually enjoy it started to get better but that was quite a long process which you know included making records and all sorts of things we never we didn't have that confidence for a long 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 time.
0: There you go. That is the second part of my interview with Mickey talking about life in Lush and those early years. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. I know I like to say that in between each song, just in case you're wondering as if. Anyway, look, I think we should play another track and then more interview. I know you want to hear Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap, and you're going to hear it before the end of the show. That features Lush and it came out on an anti Poll Tax album Alvin lives in leeds which also featured the sidleys and lots of other exciting indie bands but i think we should have a track by the new band perushka this is titled everlastingly yours take it away There you go. That is Perushka and the track titled Everlastingly Yours and that has just come out on their new album called Brick Brick Bat and that's on the Bella Union record label that is run by Simon Raymond, I do believe, I think that's his name, from the Copto Twins. Anyway, this is David East of The C86 Show and this is going to be the third part of my interview with Mickey from Lush as well as... I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, this is when I was talking about that sort of musical scene that had changed from the indie years, which I put down as 83 to 87, and then there was a dance period, and then there was the, yes, Seattle grunge scene. And then there were bands like Lush that slightly sort of slipped through and over those particular different kind of musical moments and genres. And anyway, this is Mickey's reply. And also, I'd been talking, this is what I was talking about, that she'd also, or they had also played Norwich Art Centre on a 4AD double package with the Pale Saints. And this is her reply. Mickey, can you remember those heady days? Well,
1: I mean, I, yeah, it was quite rapid, because I think we played our first gig, what was it, March 88? I think it was 88 that we... I think, Look, I'm going to have to check here. Yeah, I think it was, um, yeah. So, yeah, March 88, we we played our first gig. That was still with Mariel. Um By the time she was gone, um, which was probably only a few months later, um, you know, we were already getting reviewed. And in a way, that was good and it was London, so you would get reviewed. But at the same time, it it was, it made things very, very quick, you know, to get that kind of attention. And, I mean, you're right, there were, you know, we'd support someone like My Bloody Valentine, Then My Bloody Valentine were kind of like flying upwards, you know, and getting a lot of attention. So then we started to get attention. And um, I think, basically, by the time we played, we played like a sort of, showcase almost headliner with the pale saints so they they headlined at the falcon and that's when ivo from 4ad came to see us and um i think you know because i think actually hang on because i think a bunch of people a load of sort of major record labels came to see us around that time as well, and left after about one song. <laughs> just thought, no, they're not there yet. But Ivo kind of saw something in us. I mean, the Pale Saints were amazing, you know, this is a band that does know how to rehearse. So they went on stage and basically played this seamless set with no gaps in between, kind of little interludes between each song. I mean, it was just absolutely, you know, astonishing from start to finish. We were like breaking strings. people were like started off playing the wrong song. you know it was just awful, so I think Ivo was still a bit kind of hm not totally sure, and um basically put us in the studio to, to which which is what ended up being scar, so we did them as demos, but then he did really like them so again, you know the songs were good, but the playing was somewhere behind it. But I think, you know, making that record then four A D put our you know, the EP out and then and then suddenly, you know, it did I think that confidence, you know, Emma then wrote Deluxe, which was a real step up, and you know, I wrote Leaves Me Cold. So suddenly I think the sort of confidence in what we were doing sort of zipped up a sort of few gears and um you know, then came Sweetness and Light. So all of these things, actually, it did develop very quickly. Um, and it was about, yeah, it was about confidence and it was about opportunity. And then we toured with the Darling Buds and we toured with Loop. So, you know, playing a lot more night after night, getting used to it. I mean, it's
0: experience that makes you good, I think. Yes. Um, and obviously kind of progressive, there's a kind of quite a few bands never, you know, I spoke to. They never really got an album together. They just put out lots of singles. They possibly did the John Peel session, but then sort of things just kind of creaked. So it was kind of, in a way, I was going to say lucky, it's not completely luck, but, you know, having those kind of moments where things kept stepping up rather than just kind of stepping sideways. So, because you were also produced by, you know, Robin Guthrie from... The, the copto twins which must have made a huge kind of like my god the copto twins you know it, you know those connections were fantastic and then you were also there was one of those great compilations that we used to play all the time because we were sort of angsty people um the the elven lives in leeds which kind of brought you to another market when your fantastic version of chirpy chirpy cheap Cheep, which was kind of brilliant really wasn't it <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't know
0: if I'd call it brilliant, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but people but, but people like me of a certain age, you know, we were like eight when that was in the charts. So you suddenly had this Proustian flashback going, my God, this song, it actually, you know, you don't really want to hear it too many times because you heard it so many times when you were about eight. But it was kind of like quite fantastic. And and the bands like the Sidleys were on it and the wedding Present. So obviously you suddenly stepped into that whole arena of uh, kind of indie um a-listers really
1: you know i mean just to backtrack slightly i i do think one of the reasons why um we managed to sort of keep going because we we actually i mean i finished at uh, north London Poly in 89 which was literally when we got signed to 4AD so you know the the fact that there was you know rampant unemployment um you know you were subsidized as a student you got a grant. I mean, that's not to say you lived like a bloody millionaire, you know what I mean? But people were used to like not really having any money. And London was actually quite a cheap place to live, you know, and exist because there were squats and there was, you know, it just didn't cost that much. So actually committing to a band didn't seem like that big a deal, you know. A lot of the bands I know who split up, split up because people got jobs (laughs) and actually good jobs. You know, doctors and God knows what. You know, around in a band for the rest of their lives. But in a funny way, I mean, in a in a better jobs market, maybe I would never have been in a band because it was just, you know, there weren't weren't really, you know, what do you do with an English degree? You know what I mean? There wasn't really that much out there. So actually, just signing on and carrying on with the band and then, you know, signing to 4AD and not getting a huge amount of money at all. But it was still like, wow, this is like actually more money than I've ever had on the dole. So this is actually a bit of a step up. And it, I think that's a lot of, of, you know, made it happen. Actually. Um, we weren't expecting to get loads of money at all, which is just as well because we didn't. Um, but I think, yes, yeah, so th- that I think was the thing that meant we could commit to being in a band. And then I think the fact that things did jump up. I mean, 4AD were a recognised, and well-known label. You know, it gave, they had a whole family of, you know, the fact that we could work with Robin, the fact that they had studios and things that we could use that cost us, you know, very little or went on our bill or whatever. You know what I mean? It was all, it, that, was the thing that facilitated then making the records and I think funny you know things like Alvin lives in Leeds and even doing the kind of ABBA cover the Hey Hey Helen thing I remember sort of John Peel not really being into us and not really playing us until that when he suddenly thought oh you know I thought it was going to be some po-faced 4AD band who take themselves terribly seriously. And I think he quite liked that there was a sort of quirky side, which I think the press actually did like, you know, Um, then possibly liked too much and didn't talk about the music at all. But, you know, um, so I think, um, yeah, yeah, there was there was a momentum to it. um, And, you know, a lot of opportunities came our way.
0: Indeed. It didn't feel like that at the time. But looking back, it was probably quite a rosy period. Anyway, that's the third part of my interview with Mickey. I know we do go into a lot of depth, so I hope you're making notes. Because I will test you at the end, just to make sure that uh, you're paying attention. Anyway, because I'm obsessed with Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap" and I keep banging on about it, I think we should hear the version that uh, Lush does, which came from the album... Elvin lives in Leeds. It was an anti poll tax record and came out on vinyl. So there, check it out. It's really good. Anyway, we loved it. is lush with a track titled chirpy chirpy cheap cheap they don't write it like that anymore anyway that was produced by robin guthrie and that um came from an album alvin lives in leeds and uh it does feature people like the sidleys who did a version of love grows where my rosemary goes which is fantastic also the 14 ice bears the close lobsters wedding presents um, the pop guns, which features Amelia Fletcher on vocals as well, cud, and much much more anyway, this is going to be the next part of my interview with Mickey when we were talking about those early years and when the band became more of a stable lineup and this was her reply. Mickey, your reply
1: well again, I mean, I think by the time we got to, because you know we we made we did all these e p s you know we did like black spring e p and we did the you know the deluxe one and we did the sweetness and lights thing and then they all got sort of jammed together in the U.S. when we first signed a U.S. deal as gala as a you know compilation and it was quite tricky then to when we did spooky because you know that would be most bands first album and we hadn't actually had an album so we had to write this whole thing and um You know, and then we were produced by Robin Guthrie. And we hadn't, because we hadn't had that experience of doing a whole album, it felt like doing, you know, you were on the second album, but you hadn't actually had the experience of doing the first album. So even that was quite bitty and piecemeal. And and again, suffered slightly in terms of our confidence because Chris, who was a great drummer, you know, we very much had to do it Robin's way. It was his studio And, you know, I'm not having a go at all because I think he did a brilliant job, but it was a nightmare for Chris playing on what it wasn't even a real kit. It was like one of those things with triggers, which was great for Robin, not so great for Chris. And, you know, possibly if if we'd have had a bit more confidence, there were things that we might have insisted on to do differently differently. But then again, you know, Robin was a godsend because in terms of guitars, you know, I mean, I'd like two pedals or something. You go to Robin's studio and there's just banks of effects and you can, and he was great because you could sort of describe what kind of sound you were thinking and he'd instinctively know. And, and it was really fun, you know, and we'd never really thought about the sound of the guitars before. It was always just, you know, chorus and then distorted, you know, that's it noisy and jangly and, with Robin, this whole kind of other sort of vista opened up and, you know, equally with the vocals, you know, I was so very shy and, you know, didn't really have any kind of a technique and Robin was really good, you know, really good at um, giving you confidence and patience and all of those things. So I think with each producer we worked with, we definitely got a lot out of it and we you know it was a a good learning curve for us
0: yes and as 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 it was progressing because obviously you sort of started to capture that kind of great sort of other sort of political zeitgeist and and sort of found yourself slightly becoming part of that um i suppose the brit pop scene for a better you know better term but so Yeah, so the momentum was obviously there because the second, which was kind of almost not quite the third album, but the second album sort of came along quite quickly afterwards. So you were obviously on that sort of rock and roll treadmill by then and it was um, trucking on at quite a pace.
1: Well, I think, I mean, you know, after we'd recorded Spooky, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, well, the thing is, though, that, you know, we, we kind of played... I think I'm trying to think when Steve, so Steve left though after, um, I think we'd gone to America, we toured with Ride, which was more the kind of Ghana thing. God, I'm getting really confused, but basically Steve left. So then we got Phil in and that's when we did like a massive, massive amount of touring, you know, the whole Lollapalooza and loads of British dates. And it was quite a slog, you know, and around Europe. And then, Then when we went on to do Split, so yes, it was a bit relentless, I have to say it was a bit of a treadmill like the minute you're off tour, write you know, write some songs then rehearse, demo them into the studio Um, and there was an element of, of you know, you start to burn out a bit and you know, and there was a lot going on outside of these things, you know, relationships and Oh, my God, you know, it's quite an intense time. Um, but I think it was, again, there was this momentum to it. I mean, Palooza was great. It was, you know, that was a whole level up to go to America and be on some mad kind of circus of a tour with, you know, huge stadia and God knows what, you know, completely out of our depth, really. But again, you know, it's that sort of sink or swim. And I think every opportunity we had, we did the best to sort of wring as much as possible out of it, purely out of enjoyment rather than ambition.
0: Yes. Uh, Because it's interesting because I was a bit obsessed with Silverfish. So I sort of started following their career when I saw them supporting (laughs) My Bloody Valentine. And they did the single and then they did several albums. But their sound, you know, they they were kind of quite limited after a while, you know, but you were able... I wouldn't say they were a novelty, but they were, you know, they were amazing live and their albums were good. But there was obviously sort of musically, they they sort of hit a brick wall quite quickly. Whereas you sort of managed to get out of that whole kind of, I don't know, North London kind of grunge noise scene and sort of step into arenas, which was quite fantastic to sort of manage to do that and um, almost leave that sort of, I wouldn't say you wanted to leave that scene behind, but or meant to, but it was just kind of being able to step into another level of kind of music.
1: Well, in a funny way, I mean, again, I think it was because, you know, the the way that me and Emma went to see bands in that early period, um, we didn't, you know, we weren't, we were very open-minded about music and what kind of music we liked. And, you know, when I think of a band like Silverfish, I do actually think that, you know, Leslie, who was amazing to watch, I mean, such an amazing performer, But I think, interestingly, when she did Ruby, you know, she got obviously very into the kind of slightly more dance aspect of it, which I don't think the rest of Silverfish had any time for. So I think then you get a genuine kind of musical differences thing. Whereas we didn't have that with me and Emma because, you know, if Emma came up, you know, I mean, one of the first early best songs she wrote was Thought Forms, which is like a sort of folk three, four-time, you know what I mean, um, which was a million miles away from, you know, I don't know, some garagey song that we might have been playing early on or some slightly sub-gym slips punky thing. You know, we were quite happy to play, you know, a ballad or a, a kind of folky, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of the actual development of the music, there was always a bit of a look at, oh, I've written one with a bit of a dancey thing, Sweetness and Light, you know. No problem. It wasn't like you had half the band going, well, we're not bloody doing that. You know, we're a heavy metal band, you know, whatever.
0: Yes.
1: Um, I think really helped.
0: Yes, because obviously, yes, it reminded me of bad news with Rick Mail and the (laughs) um with heavy metal no so yes (laughs) yes that was kind of that was some repeated play wasn't it but yeah so so but when you made love life you'd really sort of hit the 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 utter formula for for sort of creating kind of almost the perfect pop song by then as well because you you know that was just full of hits which was amazing because that was your third album or fourth depending on gala but you know but you'd also i mean gala did have a lot of stuff God, it had a lot of, it was sort of like your hat full of hollow wasn't it really um so yes so so by then you know that you'd really crafted because not many bands because I because I've got this kind of thing that you know most bands have that five years they get together they make a single then John Peel played it then that gives them that step they do a John Peel session the album happens then the second album not so good if they ever do America they always come back shattered and deranged and that's the end of, and that's normally the end of the band whereas you were still sort of you know you you weren't sort of you were still going up you know it was still definitely rising more than sort of anything else so you must have been yes cracking the the rock and roll pop formula on on sort of love life um
1: i mean it's yeah i don't know i mean i think because you know, when we recorded Split, for instance, you know, which was the one that came before, I mean, it was really intense, and it had to be mixed and remixed, and, you know, and there was a quite a a sort of, was quite a, you know, we sort of went quite deep with that record, I think, and actually, it didn't sell as well. By then, the backlash was kind of well and truly underway, and, um, I think Emmy used to say that that album was a bit out of time. You know, it suddenly this, the landscape around us had changed. So it was sort of not, you know, it wasn't very well received critically. Um, I think the, I still my favourite record um, and I think it stands up now. But I think maybe what allowed us to survive that, what was a perceived kind of dip was first of all 4AD, who were a brilliant label and weren't going to just abandon you if you didn't get on top of the pops. And secondly, that we'd made some sort of traction in America, you know, possibly by doing Lollapalooza and all of these things. But, you know, a lot of those kind of brick pop bands, whether it was Blur or Pulp, or, you know, any of those, even Suede at the time, um, they didn't really do that well in America you know primal scream even despite the screaming nme headlines of you know primal scream conquer america they didn't really and they were massive over here all of those bands but not really getting a foothold in america whereas we kind of were okay-ish here we were already seen as being a bit on the wane but in america we did have some kudos you know we built up something there so that actually helped to carry us through. And I think when we did Love Life, it was, yes, the, the Britpop landscape was kind of definitely developed by then. And, but we'd also played a huge, a huge amount live and we did just think, do you know what, I think, I think we can, you know, after spending so much time and money on Split, we just stripped back completely and we did it with our sound man, Pete Bartlett, and just thought, well, we're just going to, you know, in that pop spirit, you know, we're, we're just going to strip it back. We're going to get rid of all the effects. We're just going to let the songs speak for themselves, as it were, you know. And um, so, yeah, we we kind of did that. And I think I think the choice of the singles, you know, ugh, Lady Killers and Single Girl, um, 500, they were all very upbeat and you know far away from the previous choice of say desire lines or you know other songs that were you know a bit more obscure you know so it was a bit kind of well let's pick the obvious ones for the singles because that's what everyone's
0: doing and that's the third part of my interview with mickey from the band i think we're going to play another track then we'll have some more chat we did speak for a very long time anyway this is going to be lady killers
2: Next one. Blondie was with me for a summer He flirted like a maniac Such a lady killer, super sexy Mister. Call it what we will. You know there's such a lady killer. I just bet you're still there, posing in the mirror. Hey, girls, such a lady killer. But we know where it's coming from. We know the
0: score. Indeed, there you go. That's the opening track from the album Love Life, Lady Killers, and that came out in 1996. I know, at the height of Britpop and all those great shine compilations that we used to love back in the day. And still one more year before we had Team Tony and New Labour, the optimism was all in the air. I suppose John Major was the Prime Minister at the time. Anyway, unfortunately, the next part of the story in Lush's life um, isn't so great because they have a personal tragedy. And this is Mickey's response to that question. Well,
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, before... Just to get some perspective on the huge sales aspect. (laughs) (laughs) I think that one of the problems was, was that, um, you know, it used to drive me a bit crazy because, you know, again, yes, we got in the charts. Yes, we got to number 23. Or I think one of them might have even just, just about made it to number 20. But suddenly, you know, everyone who was in, you know, what, five years ago were indie bands who kind of shunned, top of the pops and things like that you know that atmosphere had changed it was all very kind of oh well you know they're only at number 20 but we're in the top 10 and all of that and and it used to drive me a bit crazy because i know this sounds really petty but you've got when you've got bands who are selling you know they're on a major label and you go into hmv and their single costs like one pound 60 for a cd single because the record company are chucking shed loads of cash at it, and you're on a properly indie label, and your CD costs 3 99 you know, it's not an even landscape, it's not an even playing field. And so once the measure is not about the music, it's about the success, then you're at an instant disadvantage. And I didn't really give that much of a shit, because I did actually think, the important thing was that the record was good but it starts to grate on you a bit because again you're kind of labeled with that oh also rans struggling blah 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 again like i say nothing about the music all about you know the perceived success and um it became very wearing and i think you know the last year of touring which was actually quite ridiculous I mean even the, the the year started off with like a 30 day tour of the UK that was just for lady killers you know and it just went on and on and on and again chasing this sort of success this breakthrough success in America so off to America then back to America then back to America again then radio festivals then down to Europe then back to America again you know it was just insanity and I think it actually really wore us out you know I think everyone started to fray apart quite a bit Emma really didn't enjoy touring anymore Chris was obviously going through something that you know up close we none of us really realized and I think you know that's probably what was a great work ethic at the start of our career that we were always open to doing anything and always you know, believed we should be doing everything to, you know, for the good of the band. Um, I think that actually ended up kind of being a bit of a curse, because we would do every fanzine interview, every local radio station, anything people asked us, we'd do. And I think, we never got to that's the one thing we never got to that kind of like no i'm getting in my limo and i'm gonna stay in my hotel room uh, and being a bit diva or whatever which isn't diva it's trying to keep yourself sane and i think that actually you know that did that did for us
0: yes um i mean looking back at that period i mean what would I mean, with your wisdom now, what would you have attempted to do differently? I just wonder what the kind of things that would have made you say, let's just take a, let's have a think about this. Did you ever have that kind of opportunity to sit down as a band and say, shall we have a bit of a think and a bit of a strategy? Or was it just like, actually, we've just been told what we've got to do and we're off doing it?
1: I think that the the pressure, you know, when you've got, um, you know, record label, not 4 ad. Um, to be fair, it was much more about Warner Brothers in the US. You know, you're constantly on the brink of that, um, you know, oh, you're nearly there, you're nearly there, you know, just one more tour, just one more this, you know. And I think in hindsight, you know, I can see that, that you know, experts aren't experts, you know, in that. Nobody knows what's going to work. They really don't, you know. And if it's starting to get too much, you just have to have the confidence to be able to say no. I think, you know, we had, you know, management or there'd be someone at the label and there was just constant sort of, you know... (laughs) dangle thing dangle in front of you and actually it wasn't that we thought oh we're so desperate to become massively famous it was more that we didn't really want to let anyone down and I think I just would maybe have not been quite so nice about it you know um but it's difficult you know it's difficult to say because again you know these are opportunities people are giving you opportunities and you think oh well you know if we don't do it you know that seems a bit you know, ungrateful. God, it sounds ridiculous now that I'm saying
0: it. (laughs) Yes, but I think it's interesting because a lot of people in other professions I know, sometimes mostly in the world of academia, still think they're kind of frauds and that they're going to be found out. It's like, no, but you've been doing that job and you've been lecturing, you've written this and done this. But they still have that, no, but I still don't feel like, you know, I'm still faking it. And I don't, you know, I don't know if that's the same with musicians sometimes, like you said, whether it's that kind of, I can't say no, just because I could get found out. And, and you know, it will all just kind of, the, the curtain will be revealed and I'm just kind of like embarrassed by it. So it's like, no, I must say yes to everything and keep rocking just because the party might end. And, you know, but it's a weird one, you know.
1: Well, I mean, I, it's not so much about, I don't know. I don't think it's so much about faking it or being found out. I think it's actually, you know, I was always aware of how lucky we were, you know, and I think I was never that impressed. You know, there's bands that I've loved and I think are great, but I can't bear that sort of attitude of people in you know bands who were famous and I suppose especially around that brick pop time it was very fashionable for people to sit there talking about themselves like they're the big I am and you know, how amazing they are and, you know, how much they deserve this success because they're just bloody brilliant or whatever. And I I just thought, well, that's bullshit. You know, I've seen a million bands who I've seen singers, guitar, I've seen all sorts of people who are more talented than I am. People who have had better songs and they haven't made it. You know, there's a lot of luck involved. And when you are in that position where you feel very lucky because you are getting opportunities, I think that was the hardest thing of, thinking well you know because there's that chance because there's that luck involved and even even because you know having gone through split I thought we made an absolutely brilliant record and it didn't really resonate at the time and it felt like god you know this could vanish at any time you know we really do have to capitalize on it while it's there but actually I think you know maybe that's what you rely on for managers and for you know people around you to be a bit more objective and say look you really don't have to do this because they're all making money out of it as well so they're the last bloody people who are going to tell you to stop you know
0: Yes, this is this is a bit like those kind of great films with the boxer who gets pushed back in the ring because the manager just says we could just make so much money, and then they get punched and die. So, um, it guess is a bit like that in a met- metaphorical kind of way. Because I was always amazed, you know, being obsessed with David Bowie, just realizing, you know, in later life how. Those decisions that he made once, because he spent years trying to make it in the sixties and didn't, and then did make it, and then sort of killed what he made quite quickly, and then sort of went in totally different directions. I think God, that that is kind of extraordinary, because most people don't do that, do they? They just kind of wound the band, win the band, and then the band finishes. Not, I'm going to split the band at the top and then go in a completely different direction with a soul album and then go to Berlin and make a... You know, it was kind of extraordinary. But there aren't that many David Bowies, so, yes, that's probably not a good one. And
1: back. also, you know, when you're when you're the, the main or the soul operator, you know, when you're the sort of linchpin, I think you can do that. With a band, I think it's much trickier... Because there is there does have to be a bit of a team spirit. It's quite weird when bands sort of fall apart and they don't even get on. And I think some of them are very, very good at at being professional and going on stage and still sounding like a band. But I think when you've got individual band members who actually can't bear to be in a room with each other, it's not great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it must be rather tricky. And that's why most bands split up. Anyway, that's the third part of my interview with Mickey as we trundle through the decades and the musical world that is rock and roll. Anyway, this is going to be, um, this is David Eastall and this is going to be, I think we should have some music just to break up that interest and chat because it's going to get more fascinating. This is again taken from an early EP entitled Thought Forms. And that is a track that's taken from the EP Mad Love and that was Bought Forms. This is David Eastall and this is going to be the fourth part of my interview with Mickey where I was talking about the dynamics of the band and certain artists who just decided to stick with music and um, people like Lemmy from Motorhead obviously didn't have Plan B and this was Mickey's response. Mickey... What was your response to that? Interesting question.
1: I mean, yeah, but, but the other side of that is is that, you know, people always love it when there's some story, you know, whether it's the Gallaghers or any of these bands, you know, they're brothers or they went to school with each other and that's when they formed the band and, you know, all of that. But the problem with that, actually, there is a flip side to that, that the people, you know, I don't know how many people you still hang out with that you knew when you were 14. You know, most of them, you'd probably think, you'd have literally nothing that you'd want to have to do with them. Do you know what I mean? It's quite tough to make a relationship last for that long and, and actually maintain a professionalism so that God knows, you know, in those intervening years when people have marriages or they end up with drug problems and this, that and the other, and to be this sort of close-knit group and not have resentment and not outgrow people... Is really really hard.
0: Yes, God. I mean, you know, when you said that, I thought I sort of yeah. There's one person we occasionally meet up, but um, yes, it's one. That's all I all I can say on one hand, <laughs> one person from that <laughs> period, and and everyone else is like, God, no. A school reunion would just make me think, oh my God, no. We were we're just a sort of group of people that happened to live in the same area at the same time. There's nothing else that we bonded with, and um, I would be amazed if we had anything. I don't know, it would be a weird one. So look, just going to 90, did you have a moment in then 96 where you sat down and went, oh shit, this is it, and just finished, you know, like, because it came to an end at that point?
1: Well, I mean, weirdly, I think when we got back from America, we were going to be touring Europe that autumn. And just prior to that, Emma basically called a meeting and she just said that she'd had enough. She was totally burnt out. She didn't want to go back to America. She was sick of this. Every time we got a manager, they'd end up chasing America. And, and she was just sick of touring, actually. She didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. And but so, yeah, I think she'd, she called this meeting and she said, look, I, I'm kind of done. You know, I I don't want to, you know, we've had a bit of chart success. I can see where this is going to go. We're going to be expected to make another load of hit singles and top of the pops. And I haven't got it in me to write another album, you know, that even tries to do that. And um, I mean, I knew it was coming. And I so, you know, I went into that meeting saying, yeah, I, I know. And I said, look, basically, I just think the most important thing is, is that the band stays together. Because, like I say, I know there's a lot of luck involved. Um, you know, once you're in a band that has got that platform, it's, you know, it's it's a real achievement. And actually, you know, I, I basically said, look, if you want to record an album full of Gregorian chants, I'll do it. I, don't, I actually don't care. But I just think the most important thing is, is that the band stays together. So I think, you know, she kind of reconsidered and said she'd think about it but then literally the following week you know Chris died and that was it really you know um I think when that happened I definitely knew there was just absolutely no way I could um carry on
0: yes and that and because I guess there was kind of the whole admin and, you know, I mean, Lush became a business. So did it, was it the case that you just all went, yeah, that's, that's it, we'll close the chapter, we'll ch- close the, the final chapter and that's it and we'll just, you know, someone else can sort out all the, you know, paperwork, the royalties and, um, and just, did it, did it feel like you were just going to walk into another part of life and that, that part was gone?
1: Do you know what? I think it sort of stretched on a bit because I do remember sort of Emma perhaps calling me like, you know, early into 97 and saying, look, I think we should make some sort of announcement. And, you know, because I had all sorts of people going, oh, you know, you can still carry on and, you know, you can get another drummer and all of that. But I think, you know, the point is, is that it just totally ripped the soul out of it. And I I just didn't even want to, I couldn't really even go to gigs anymore. I think I went to a few gigs and just ended up crying, you know, it was just awful. So I just sort of needed time. And I think when Emma was, you know, saying maybe we should make an announcement, I just thought, I, actually, I don't want to, I don't give a shit about anyone else And I don't really care and I'm not willing to get all professional here and what about the fans? So I was sort of feeling quite selfish, to be honest, after having spent all my time in Lush sort of feeling like I was doing a lot of stuff for other people. I just actually sort of got a bit, you know, I don't know, bullheaded and and just wasn't willing to entertain other people's needs. So I just you know lapsed into silence for quite a long time eventually you know it was announced and it was like you know whatever okay fine it's all over but uh, to me it was pretty bloody obvious to be honest
0: yes god and then obviously decades you know so obviously you must have yeah yeah. you, you, got, you got on with your life which must have been kind of odd. Did it did it feel like an emptiness at that point after having sort of a 10-year period sort of with such a sort of musical kind of focus to suddenly go, shit, this isn't such a musical focus? I just often wonder what happens when people sort of have to sort of deal with the next phase.
1: Um, well, I think... Oh, sorry, my phone. I'm going to call her back, sorry. Um... I think that, you know, because it was such a massive shock and it really pulled the rug from under me, um, I'd started, actually, funnily enough, me and Moose had got together um, earlier, that in 96. So our relationship was quite new when Chris died. It was about, you know, maybe six or eight months in, something like that. And I suppose those things either kind of make you or break you. Um, and actually, it sort of, you know, pulled us very close together. So I guess I was quite cocooned for a while. For about a year, we just sort of, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't working. But, you know, I had some money saved up. So we sort of just became, I don't know, we hung out with a very small group of friends and, and kind of healed that way. And... Um, and then actually I just, you know, I just wasn't interested in doing music. I started doing subbing work. I got into that through like a mutual friend and, and I had people say, oh, you know, you should work at the NME or you should try and get, you know, sub editing work at, um, you know, Q or Mojo or all these. And I thought, no, I can't imagine anything worse than going back into that world. So I absolutely abandoned it. I just... You know, I worked for TV magazines and <laughs> had a whole different life. And, you know, for a long, long time, nobody knew I, I'd been in a band. I never used to talk about it. Um, I just wanted a whole separate life. And then I had kids and, you know, so and it was it was good. It was good to rebuild all that. I didn't miss it. You know, and when people said to me, I remember going for a job at IPC and, and actually the editor did know he was like going, but do you not want to kind of go back to being in a band or, or, you know, isn't this really boring for you? <laughs> and, I was like, and I said, no, this is exactly what I want. I said, you know what, if I could have, it's almost like a fantasy, if I could sit here and open a door in my house and be on stage and play a gig and then shut that door and walk straight back into my life, that would be great. But all the other crap that goes with it, um, I was like, no, I can't deal with it anymore. It was just, you know, it became something that was really unpleasant and, you know, just not fun anymore,
0: you know. (laughs) Yes, no, actually, I think everyone has that kind of moment. But then, as everyone does, not everyone, but a lot of the bands, I suppose, from that 80s period, i sort of realised, and and they've sort of realised as well, that they've sort of had that, oh, actually, we might get back together in a nice and groovy sort of low-key sort of way and then sort of see how it goes. And then quite a few have kind of done sort of EPs and stuff like the Darling Buds and uh, the Primitives. And, you know, people keep doing musical things. So, obviously the the musical moment sort of came back a few years ago with lush, didn't it? So did that was that an easy thing to think, oh, actually there's been enough water under the bridge. Um the idea of sort of doing it one more time is quite appealing?
1: Um no, it was quite tricky actually because I think there was a few there was a couple of opportunities where it came up. I think around Oh, do you know what, I can't even remember, like 2007 maybe, something like that, I think Phil was touring with the Mary Chain and I think it came up as a possible um, oh you know, we could reform Lush and blah 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 and my kids were really small at the time and I thought bloody hell, this is going to be a real I don't know if I can do this you know, and I think I wanted more guarantees, but you know the other thing was, was I wasn't on social media at all and you know, this was an advent that had happened. I think I'd ventured vaguely in and instantly got loads of, I don't know, slightly stalkerish stuff that I couldn't really deal with. So I completely didn't go into that world. And I think it was it was sort of Emma and Phil who were saying, you know, there's a lot of people out there who really, really still love Lash and who would, you know, really love to see us play and blah, blah, blah. So I kind of... I had to think about it for about a year because also, you know, Emma had been in a band in the interim. Um, Phil had been touring with the Mary Chain. You know, they'd been in that world for, you know, throughout, really. I mean, Emma had also worked at an agency. You know, so she was always in that music world, whereas I was like, I'd completely cut off from it. And the thought of, you know, going on stage and playing a gig after 20 years, you know, I just thought, I don't know if I can still do this. Um... So I really had to think about it long and hard. And I needed a lot of guarantees and, you know, and, and basically even once I agreed to it. Um, I mean, funny enough, I always tell this story because it was just quite amusing that um, Clint Mansell, who's, um, you know, was Pop Will it Eat Itself, now multi Emmy award winning, whatever Grammy, this, that and the other. <laughs> he because I'm still friends with him. And when when I would go out and see my mum in L.A., we'd sort of meet up for a pint and say hello. And I remember going out there and me and Moose were sitting with him and I was sort of talking about it. I said, oh, I don't know, you know, the lush thing. And he actually said to me, well, if you're going to do it, don't just do it for the money because that will be a disaster. <laughs> and, um, and he said it will also be miserable. So I had to think about it really long and hard. Um, and then... I, I did think actually, well, do you know what, uh, this is possibly the last opportunity I'll ever get to, uh, play and do, uh, just even re-explore that side ever again. And actually, you know, maybe it would be nice for the kids to see that their mum used to be, you know, a musician. And so, you know, I kind of, I thought, oh, actually, yeah, maybe, maybe this isn't, You know, maybe this is an opportunity to do something, to just enjoy it. So I kind of agreed to do it and then lost loads of sleep and panicked and stuff. But but actually, you know, once it was great, you know, once made the record and we played the gigs, I, I did really, really, really enjoy it.
0: Yes, because it was obviously you know, that, um, you know, I'm a bit obsessed with my BBC4 on the Friday night stuff and they were talking about bands that re- reunited. God, that sounds like one of those 70s songs. I'm sure there was a song, Reunited. Because it felt so good. Oh God, yeah. Um yeah, so they had the police, which were the other band of it, who who made it huge, and they had the the drummer, I think his name's Stuart Copeland, isn't it, saying that when they got back together, um, everyone was having a great time apart from him and Sting, who were like sitting there feeling the most miserable. And then they had band therapy, and which I thought was quite sweet. And they sort of spoke about the whole, you know, everything about their issues of life and and sort of managed to sort out kind of the stuff, and and sort of I think they got through the tour. And I think it got slightly extended, mainly because there was probably so much money involved. Um, But so when you all sort of walked back in the room in that kind of way that you sort of get together after not seeing each other for several decades, did it feel like, oh, this is lovely? Or did it think, oh, my God, we do have a few moments. We need to have a few chats here.
1: Well, the thing is, is that I, you know, I was in touch with Emma and Phil. You know, we did kind of, you know, hang out um so we did see each other and you know it was it was we weren't like massively close but we did you know we were kind of you know in communication so it wasn't like a sort of you know oh my god you know this is like you know 20 years that we've not really communicated um and you know we slipped quite easily into just uh being together. I think it's the working together that's the tricky part, you know. Yeah. Um so and and you know, Justin was on board and and you know, there was a lot to enjoy. I don't want to get too into it because basically it ended with a big bloody grenade again, you know, and and all fell apart. But I guess, you know, um, if we'd have had the budget of the police, I think a band therapist would have been a really good investment, actually.
0: <laughs> yes, band therapists. They should be employed more. Anyway, that's probably the fourth, if not fifth part of the interview I had with Mickey. Like I said, it did go on for a very long time. So I'm not surprised if you're still, if you're not listening, but if you are listening, there is just going to be one little bit left. Which um, which is fascinating. Anyway, I think we'll have a little bit more music and then a little bit more interview. And then that'll be it. So don't worry if you're um, still awake, well done. And, um, you know, you will get a prize at the end of it. Anyway, this is, again, from the album Love Life. And this is Heavenly Bodies. stuff indeed that's lush in the track heavenly bodies this is david Eastall, the c86 show and um, just because i've said it once or twice already doesn't mean i can't say it again if you want to find any of the old shows i have archived them they're all available on spotify itunes mix and podbeam just go for c86 show they're all there and if you want to get in touch to say what a marvelous show it is then <laughs> Far away, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C eighty six show. Anyway, this is going to be the last part of my interview with Mickey, where we are still talking about the wonderful world that is reforming a band and what are the um, experiences and sometimes the consequences of that decision. Mickey, take it away.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think again, it's just one of those things about being given an opportunity. You know, um, I think if we'd have been reforming and just playing you know like to I don't know a pub or something I don't think it would have happened you know I do think there was a kind of look you know this could be you could be you know you could get Coachella you could get you know the roundhouse you know all of these things were like big big opportunities um which made it much harder to say no um so I think I think it was as much about uh you know will i regret- if I say no to this, am I gonna regret it? <laughs> you know <laughs> um, so I think you know that was that was probably one of the driving things for me was um just you know grasping the 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 moment or seizing the day or whatever you know. Um, I mean, you know, but it was going to, you know, but I knew it was going to be a huge amount of work and it was going to be very tricky because I was going to have to be away from home and, you know, it meant Moose was going to have to, you know, be, I mean, you know, we share the childcare and all of that. It's not like I'm a stay-at-home mum, but, you know, it's quite a thing when someone suddenly, you know, has to vanish off for like three weeks or is, you know, rehearsing every day and, and all of that starts, you know, that activity starts, It's it's... It's a lot of work um, and it's a lot of stress. And, you know, it wasn't just it's not like you just sort of rehearse and then go on stage. There's writing and there's all the sort of management of the band, um, you know, decisions to be made. And it's full time, you know, it is.
0: Yes. And was it? Did you ever have those moments where you thought, God, we've got to get this right? Because obviously the people are going to come and see us you know, they, they they don't want it, you know, not, we're not playing in a small pub, you know, charging a couple of quid, you know, this is going to be a big kind of gig. So obviously, you didn't want to sort of ruin people's kind of expectations or the memory of the band. So did that sort of have a certain pressure on the members?
1: A huge pressure, certainly, certainly for me, you know, I really felt that, that, you know, pulling me in the other direction of not doing it was that, You know, actually, it's a miracle that Lush had survived those 20 years, that people did still give a shit because actually, you know, we were critically not that acclaimed, you know, and we could have easily just vanished. I mean, certainly in the sort of decade after Lush split up, you know, I can remember various books and things coming out about, you know, British music in the 80s and 90s. We didn't get a bloody mention anywhere, you know. And it was only really with that kind of shoegaze kind of revival that, um, you know, people started to come out of the woodwork. And in fact, I remember something like The Quietus or something doing some uh, piece, however many years on from Spooky or something where, you know, the guy wrote a piece that was really, you know, very lovely and talked about our place in that canon and mentioned all these um, you know, writers who thought we were great. And, oh, my God, immediately, you know, under the comments thing, you know, people piling in like, oh, is, is this a joke, you know, and all the sort of lush slag-offs. And then actually I saw, like, there was a tipping point where actually suddenly loads of people started coming on and going, you know, oh, lush were great, shut up, and, you know, the usual social media bloody storm. And actually people started backing down, and I thought okay, that's quite interesting, Um, you know, but, but yeah, so I think at the point where we were going to play these gigs, I thought it's really important to not rubbish that legacy, you know, people had really fond memories of the band, and actually, we were really good live, you know, by the, you know, eventually, you know, by the time we toured Spooky, and done so much touring, we'd got a lot better, and people had really good memories of us, and I didn't want that to be trashed either, so it was a lot of it was a lot of rehearsing. It was a lot of me sitting in front of the computer and bloody hell trying to find YouTube videos of gigs so I could remember what the bloody hell I was playing on the guitar. And, you know, it was intense.
0: I would imagine, yes. Actually, that that's the other thing that a lot of people have mentioned, isn't it? I, can't, I don't think, you know, yes, learning, learning what the songs were was quite tricky. So then you've obviously got into a new musical kind of adventure as well. So obviously... The, the, you know that experience did sort of catapult you, or certainly encourage you to sort of keep going, not rather than saying, no sod it, I'm just not going to, I'm going to put that away." Cause, you know, because you said it kind of ended with in a, do you say grenade? So yeah, so so what's the new musical kind of um, avenue that you've got?
1: Um, well, basically, because um, what happened is, is, I mean, to be honest with you, even when we were rehearsing in March of 2016 before we'd even played a single gig for the reunion um you know phil had actually already had enough <laughs> Funny enough he actually said look i'm gonna leave by the end of the year and the last gig we had scheduled in was the manchester show anyway but he was already saying that he was going to be out um so um when he decided not to play that last show, it kind of dropped us in it a bit um, in the, you know, I mean, I I remember our sort of tour manager saying, look, you know, you can cancel these sort of, there's a couple of festivals that were still left to do. He said, you can cancel those. But I think, you know, that Manchester gig is like, people have actually bought tickets and they bought them right from the start. And it might be the only show that they were going to go to. And to cancel that is actually not great you know um and we'd already had a couple of disasters you know i'd missed coachella because i had a whole bloody visa nightmare so you know we'd missed you know that cost us money i mean that was the genesis of where everything started to go wrong really um but basically when we were left with this gig and it was like oh no right now okay so we've got to find a bass player and someone who can learn 21 songs in like a matter of weeks And Mick uh, Moose actually suggested Mick Conroy, who who was in Modern English. And he used to be in Moose as well. He played in Moose for a while. So, um, basically, we started rehearsing. And, you know, Emma was kind of, you know, I don't think she was particularly keen to play that last show, but she sort of went along with it. But um, we kind of let her off most of the rehearsals. um, And... So really it was me and Mick and Justin a lot of the time just rehearsing together and we really enjoyed it. <laughs> we were like, this sounds really good actually. We sound like a punk band. And we were sort of mucking around quite a lot um, and, and just enjoying ourselves. So I think on it sort of came out of that really where, you know, uh, Justin, it was Justin's who drove it really, because he'd said to me, like, oh, you know, you should do, like, a solo thing or this shouldn't be the end. Um, But I was, you know, I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not a solo thing. That's not my thing at all, you know. If I do anything, it will be a band. And, um, you know, I think he gave it one last throw of the dice. Justin sort of did try and get, you know, me and Emma to contemplate continuing with Lush. You know, he did say, having worked for this year, you know, it would be a real shame to chuck it away. Um, but, you know, I think relationships were really frayed. And, you know, I did say, you know, I think, you know, me and Emma would need to work out a lot of stuff. But, hey, you know, again, I'm always willing to talk. But, but I think for Emma, she said, no, I, it just what hadn't been really worth it for her. So um, I think I could sort of guilt-free you know, I didn't, I, I certainly didn't want her to think, oh, you know, I've been plotting this all along. So I think when that was clear, I did sort of think, well, let's just see what happens. And Justin was sending me drum patterns and <laughs> being quite coercive. And, and then Mick was up for it. And then, you know, I suggested to Moose, well, do you want to, be part of this, Um, so it kind of grew quite organically, you know, I think over that Christmas we started writing a bit, and, but you know, everyone was very busy, everyone's, you know, Justin was off on tour with, you know, he does drum teching, and Mick was on tour with Modern English, and so we were just fitting in little rehearsals and get-togethers in between times, and it just sort of picked up, really, just slowly, 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 Record three songs here, record four songs there, and then you know, we didn't really know where it was going to go. And then,
0: uh, yeah, bingo, well, now we've just marked the
1: album. So. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> so, 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 I did I, the one thing I didn't quite catch. So, is this as Lush, or is this with another project called something else, or is this? Oh, no, you know? no
1: I, it's not Lush. Let me make that absolutely clear <laughs> it's no. not Lush. No, I think when um, when rumours were first out that I was doing music again, I think there was a bit of a panic from certain quarters that I was going to try and hijack the Lush name and and milk it in some way. No, no, it's um, it's not that. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Well, no, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole history of those bands like. I don't know, Barclay, James Harvest and Pink Floyd that got all sort of very confused about who owned the name and whose band was going to be it. So there's there's all those kind of variations of so-and-so's band and so-and-so then also has to use their name and their version of the band. So I'm sure the, law- the lawyers must have an amazing time sorting all that out. So what's this kind of outfit going to be called? Uh,
1: it's called Piroshka and um, uh, it's... I mean, I I did just want to say, by the way, with the sort of mention of that kind of, you know, band splitting and who owns the name. I mean, I think, you know, Lush is always going to be me and Emma. It wouldn't, it just wouldn't work with either one of us not being there. So that was never a consideration. Um, So the new thing was always going to be a totally new thing. And although it was kind of born out of the embers of, the reunion with Justin being involved and Mick being involved, um, it it's never been uh, in any way a continuation. It's always been sort of quite deliberately different. The way we write songs is different. The, you know, the whole vibe of it is quite different, actually. And, you know, it's also a very different time. You know, we don't have, you know, <laughs> I don't have the, the money or the platform to have some, you know, hot shot producer come in and work with us. You know, we had to self-produce, we had to fund it ourselves, you know, for a large part. And I think we really just did it because we were enjoying it. I, you know, I don't think any of us went into this thinking, oh, you know, we've got, we can make loads of money or we can become famous. This is the worst possible time, I think, to actually even imagine that that could happen. Um, Records don't really sell, you know. Um, I mean, I I think it's, in that respect, without sounding too twattish, you know, it's quite pure in that way. It is about just wanting to make a great record and to enjoy playing
0: music, so... And do you say, yes, and, and do you, I mean, because you sound you sound a lot more sort of light talking about that. So did you feel with that, that lush, you know, the, the sort of, uh, yes, that, that sort of comeback? Did that I mean, that sounded quite a heavy number. Do, do you sort of wish you hadn't bothered with that now and just kind of had sort of come back and started with a full fresh band and without any of the baggage?
1: Um, no, because I wouldn't have done it you know if if someone had come up to me and said oh you know do you want to make an album and go on tour or play I'd have been like absolutely no way I've got bloody time for that um <clears throat> it was actually you know I'm I'm at you know in that respect I'm totally grateful because yeah. you know it was it was the opportunity to play those shows and to actually come back and and rehearse and suddenly discover you know I, I tell you what I remember like you know because I, I kept my job the whole time you know I had a sabbatical so I had about an extra six weeks holiday that year off work so I used all that up for the lush thing and um so I was going into the office you know and then I'd be like you know next day you know like three days or something rehearsing and then or playing some gig somewhere and then back into the office the next day you know it was full on, but. I'd sort of turn up at rehearsal i absolutely knackered from like a week of work or whatever. And within about 20 minutes of playing, you sort of think, this is actually really good fun. This is not a job, right? This is not the same as going into the office. (laughs) And, And so, and I'd sort of forgotten how much fun that could be, you know, and how genuinely, you know, I don't know, you know, just playing music—it's actually brilliant. But I, I had kind of forgotten. So I think without the lush thing, I wouldn't have. It wouldn't have crossed my mind, you know.
0: Yes. And what would you? Because obviously you've had a huge amount of experience. What would you say to your an eighteen-year-old self, sort of starting out? Because, because obviously you, yes, you've done you've done most of it, haven't you? What, what most, you know, the sort of the rise. That sounds like Reggie Perrin, The Rise, The Fall and then The Return, you know, it's like and then The Reunion, which, you know, obviously sounded quite, um, yes, yeah, quite animated and then a new band so so yes, you've managed to squeeze a lot in especially in the last five years
1: Yeah, I mean I'm always a bit weird about those questions you know, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? Well, your 18-year-old self wouldn't listen to a bloody word that I'd say anyway Um, It's you know, you, I think you just career through these things and you sort of survive. Um, I can't imagine doing it any differently, really. You know, the highs were incredibly high and the lows were incredibly low, but I can't really think of a way that that you could avoid most of it. Um, I mean, yeah, there's probably certain managers I would have not bloody gone with. But, but you know, and but... You know, we were really lucky. We had 4AD. We, you know, hit a zeitgeist. I mean, it seems a bit churlish, really, to complain about too much of it. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, on the whole, it was great. But, you know, unfortunately, there were some really, really terrible things that happened as well. And that includes, you know, friendships going awry, you know, the loss of Chris... I mean, again, I don't know if Chris would have committed suicide if he hadn't have been in a band. I have no idea. And it's really difficult to think that way, you know. Um, ultimately, I think whatever path you choose, you know, you you get to this point, here I am at 50, whatever I am. 51, 52, I always forget. And you just think, well, I, I'm in one piece, you know. <laughs> I've got quite a lot of good memories. I've got some fucking awful ones as well, but... <laughs>
0: And that really is the last part of my interview with Mickey, and um, I hope you enjoyed that. If you still are, but anyway, I was quite gripped actually. I hadn't listened to that. Um, well, I never listened to it in my life, but I recorded it in September last year. So obviously the band was still in its slight infancy, and uh, the new album by Parishka has come out. So if you want to know any more information, they are on Facebook and also their record label is called Bella Union. So you can find more information there and they have dates coming, which it's going to be at the end of March throughout April and possibly into May. And you can find their album on all the usual channels and in all the usual places. But anyway, this has been David Eastall, the C86 show thank you ever so much for listening it's been a pleasure i've enjoyed it and that's probably all that matters anyway i'll leave you with some more tracks by the band um lush this is and this is going to be out of control have a great week